Good morning. We'll be reading from Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 23. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing in him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the dominion, domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Thank you for reading, Steve. Uh, We just heard a huge statement about how Christ became incarnate in the flesh, although he existed, the, the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell in him in bodily form. And through the cross of Jesus, God is working to reconcile all things to himself by the blood of the cross. And that's what I want to preach on this morning. Would you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, I pray that you would draw us close to yourself. That you would help us see how precious the blood of Jesus is. How great your love is for us. And that you would give us your heart for the entire world. That though we were sinners, you loved us in our sin. While we were unlovely, you loved us and have made us lovely through Jesus Christ. And I thank you for your great love, and I pray that you would bless us now as we look to your word, that you would help us to see it with great clarity, and that you would lift our hearts to sing your praises. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. The Apostle Peter, who was a first-hand witness of what Jesus did and taught, said this, 2 Peter 1, verse 16, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 
See, the church of Jesus Christ is not organized around stories that are inspirational. It's not just something that makes us feel good. It's not like any other religion where many times they don't even care. Greeks did not believe that Zeus was historical. No one did. But they built their lives around mythology and lived their lives in fear of gods that were not real. And Peter says, unlike all of those things, we saw him firsthand. We saw his majesty and we proclaimed it to you so that you could know God. And Luke, in Luke's gospel, begins by saying this. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word that have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Again, he mentions eyewitnesses who saw Jesus in person. And his desire in writing this gospel is that we would have certainty about Jesus Christ, even 2,000 years later, that we would have certainty about what he did and what he said. Luke wrote his gospel after carefully talking to the people who witnessed it firsthand, people like Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Peter, who tells his, his readers later that they saw the glory of God in the face of Christ. And Luke's desire is that we would know the truth of his writing. He names names. He lists places so that the truth of his writing could be cross-examined, so that you could ask questions about it and say, is this really true? As we've gone through the gospel, we've seen Jesus conquer the power of Satan. He resists temptation and overcomes it, something that we could never do, but he did. And we see him heal those who are sick, He casts out demons and shows his power and authority over the physical world and the spiritual world. And he preaches and teaches with authority. He tells you what's true. He tells you what God has said in the past and what it means for us. And now the gospel of Luke is quickly reaching its climax. The Savior who says that he came to rescue sinners, who preached the good news to the poor, who announced that God's kingdom was at hand, this Savior is about to die. And the question that I want to ask and answer this morning is why? Why is it death that accomplishes salvation? And it's my prayer today and the main point of my message that you and I would be fully persuaded that the blood of Jesus is necessary for us and that we would believe in its power to save. Christians make a really big deal of the death of Jesus. Secular historians agree that it happened, but non-Christians don't care. They look at it as a sort of historical accident. A, A good man who was misunderstood was murdered by his political enemies. But not so with Christians. We don't believe that the death of Christ was an accident. In fact, we celebrate the execution of our founder. 
The cross has become a universal symbol, recognized all the way in communist China, all the way here in Holly, Michigan, all over the world. You can be in Africa or India. You can be in Hong Kong. You can be in Hawaii. Everyone knows the cross symbolizes Christianity. It's where Jesus died. Not only do we know of his death historically, but, but we celebrate it in our singing. And I'm just going to mention a handful of songs. I, I, there are dozens of others that I can't mention. But think about this song, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Think about there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Think about there's power in the blood. Wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. And think about the great songs of invitation. Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you cleansed by what Jesus has made possible through His precious blood? We don't just talk about it as a historical event. We sing about it. We celebrate its saving power. But the question is, why is all of this blood necessary? Why blood? You know, some have said that the cross of Christ and the blood of Jesus, it's a demonstration of God's love. And that's certainly true. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this but to lay down his life for his friends. And then he laid his life down. He demonstrates that he loves us that much. And the book of Romans that I mentioned earlier says that this is the clearest demonstration of God's love, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But if it's only a demonstration of love, It's a bizarre demonstration that ultimately does not make sense. Think about it this way. Mark Dever is a pastor in Washington, D.C. And he gives this illustration. He says, imagine for a moment that that you're sitting. This is hard this morning because it's so cold and awful outside. But imagine for a moment that you're sitting by a beautiful lake. It's warm. Picture yourself in, in a chair on a dock. Sun is shining. And maybe you have a book, or maybe you're just enjoying the beauty of nature. And as you're sitting there, someone goes just running past you and says, I love you, and jumps in the lake and drowns. Now, do you think, wow, what a demonstration of love. That's so incredible. No, you're horrified. You think, what? Why did that happen? What did it even mean? You don't think of the person as loving, you think of them as a lunatic. I can think of a million ways that you can show your love for me. None of them include drowning. So why is the love of God on display in the cross of Christ? Why is the death of Christ necessary? Now think again of that lake. But instead of sitting on a chair, sweet and serene... Think of yourself as having fallen in, and you can't swim, and you're dying, and you're drowning, and then someone runs and rescues you and saves you from drowning, but in the process, they die. 
That is why the death of Christ was necessary. Because you and I were not peacefully sitting on the sidelines of universal history. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And so the cross of Christ is not just a demonstration of God's love. It is a rescue operation to save you and I from the consequences of the sin that we were born with. For the sins that we committed that would result in our death. And Christ in his great love for us not only shows us what love is. But he bears the penalty for our sin so that we could be at peace with God through the cross of Jesus Christ. The reason that the Father shows His love for us in the cross of Christ is because He loved us while we were still in our sin. And the Scripture teaches that sin is such an affront to God that it must be punished. But the good news is that God loves sinners so much that He Himself bears the punishment on our behalf. Colossians chapter 2, just a little bit after the passage that Steve read a moment ago, says that God is both just, meaning He will not overlook my sin, and He is justifier, meaning He will forgive a guilty sinner like me. He is the God who justifies the ungodly. Scripture says that you and I who were dead in our trespasses, God can make alive together with Christ, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This record of debt, this rap sheet, that is a lifelong rap sheet for each of us, God set aside, nailing it to the cross. So that in the cross of Christ, my sins were nailed and forever canceled because Jesus paid for them for me. I deserve the cross, but Jesus took my place. Now in some cases, it, it maybe seems that our sin is small and insignificant and undeserving of that kind of wrath. But this, this kind of thinking is wrong-headed for, for two reasons. You know, in the past I've said... Our consciousness of our own sin is a little bit like somebody who's singing a solo and they're tone deaf. They may believe and maybe have been encouraged by people who love them that they can sing and have a beautiful voice. But the reality is it sounds terrible and they don't know because they can't hear pitch. That's what our consciousness of our own sin is like. We feel like we're fine, but we're not. We are not good at assessing ourselves. Not only is it wrong-headed because we're not good at assessing our own righteousness, but we're also not recognizing that the cross of Christ is the ultimate and clearest demonstration of just how awful our sin is. Think about this for just a moment. The Bible is very, very clear that God the Father loves His Son, Jesus Christ, very much. That the father delights in his son far more perfectly than any human father or mother could delight in their child. Think about the, the joys of having children. If you have children, and, and not the times that are frustrating and awful, put those aside for a second. Think about the times that are incredible, that you just don't want to end. 
Lately, my, my kids and I, we've been reading a, a series of books called The Mysterious Benedict Society, and they're whimsical, and they're fun, and, and we've been sitting, snuggling on a couch, the, the three big kids, while well, the two are kind of sitting in bouncers on the floor, and they crush me, and you know, I, I, all three of them want to sit in my lap, and it's hard because my lap is not that big. Those are precious times that I delight in my children, and I love that. And if that's true of me as a human father, think of how much more God the Father delights in the Son, Jesus, who is infinitely perfect. Jesus has never frustrated God the Father, ever. He's never thrown a tantrum. He's never gotten out of bed when he was supposed to be in bed. God the Father delights perfectly in his Son, Jesus Christ. Now think for a moment what that would mean if the cross weren't really necessary. Why would God the Father, who delights in the Son, send his Son to die in agony if our sins weren't a big deal? It would mean that at least some of the cross was pointless. And it would mean that God the Father didn't genuinely love his Son. If the cross of Christ displays the love of God for us as sinners, it also lets us know the seriousness of our sin because the Father willed that his Son would experience it for us. And the Son willingly took it upon Himself to pay that price for us, to rescue us from the wrath of God. See, the truth of of the Scripture is the most dangerous thing in the world. It's not a natural disaster. It's not a hurricane. It's not terrorism. The most dangerous thing in the world is that you and I would die in our sins apart from Christ and face the eternal wrath of God. And so the cross of Jesus Christ comes to rescue us from that. The love of God sent the Son of God to absorb the wrath of God so that guilty sinners could be adopted into the family of God. And all of this is done to show us the amazing glory of God. And some people treat the cross of Christ as if it were some sort of terrible accident. Case of corruption and envy where a good man was murdered and that's that. But the Bible doesn't treat it like that at all. The Bible says in Acts 2.23 that Jesus was delivered up to the cross according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In other words, God the Father planned the whole thing. And so this morning in Luke's gospel, I want to show you that plan exactly unfolding So I've taken a couple of minutes to meditate carefully on the cross of Christ, why it's necessary. Now I want to show you the planned murder of the Son of God. I want to show you a time of planned remembrance about the salvation of God. And then I want to show you a planned death for the sake of sinners. Start with me in Luke, getting in chapter 20. Looking at verses, excuse me, chapter 22, looking at verses 1 through 7. And look at planned murder. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put Christ to death, for they feared the people. And then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve, and he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. 
Now, there are so many things we could say just about those short verses. Jesus has condemned the, the religious leaders in the past for being lovers of money. But you notice when they have an opportunity to betray Jesus to death, suddenly they love the opportunity to kill him more than they love their money. And they are glad to give their money away to betray the Son of God, who, by the way, has come to rescue sinners, who is healing people, who is forgiving people and restoring them to health, both physically and spiritually. And they are eager to sell him to death. Not only do they love this great betrayal more than they love their money, but they are also deeply afraid of the people. They don't fear God, they fear popular opinion turning away from them. And so they long to do this great evil in secret. And notice what I think are some of the most important words are in verse 6. As Judas consents to betray Jesus, says that he seeks an opportunity to betray him. In the absence of a crowd. Now think for just a moment. This is a conspiracy. Lots of conspiracies are crazy and ridiculous. This one's real. And recognize they cannot create the opportunity they need. They are powerless in this situation. They are plotting and conspiring. Their desire is to betray the Son of God. But they cannot foresee the future. And they certainly cannot plan the future. They would like to, but they can't. The best they can do is to seek an opportunity, and they're hoping one comes along, but they are at the mercy of God, literally, because they can't create the opportunity that they need. So there's a planned murder that will not go forward unless they have an opportunity, and they are waiting. Now, as they are planning to murder Christ, look at what Christ is planning and look at planned remembrance in verses 7 through 13. It says, Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And they said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city... A man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Now let's pause for just a moment. I want to talk about two things here. Number one, Jesus has definite foreknowledge of this event. He is the one who is in control of this situation. As the disciples go into the city, they find the man with the jar of water. They find the room furnished. And they are able to prepare it just as Jesus has told them to do. He is not waiting for an opportunity. He knows what will happen, and he instructs his followers to prepare them for what will happen. And what are they doing? They are observing the Passover celebration. Now, if you were with us as we went through the book of Exodus as a church, you remember what Passover is all about. This is the time annually when God's people remembered God's salvation. 
In fact, it's, it's worth our time to pause for just a moment. And if you think about the book of Exodus, it opens with all of God's people in slavery in Egypt. And they are suffering, and, and Pharaoh is having their babies slaughtered because he is afraid of them, that they will overpower his people, and so he commits genocide. And God's people groan and cry out in their suffering and ask for God to rescue them. And it says that God hears them and he sends his prophet Moses. And as Moses wages this epic spiritual battle with Pharaoh, he sends the ten plagues on Egypt and God's wrath is poured out on Egypt. And then in the final plague, he does something staggering. He turns and talks to Israel, to God's people, to the Jews. And he says, before this plague, you need to sacrifice a lamb and put some of its blood on your doorpost because I am going to go through and I am going to finally judge Egypt. And the angel of the Lord comes through and he kills the firstborn son all the way from Pharaoh's house, all the way down to the slave people's houses. And God says to his people, the only way you are exempt from this judgment is if you have slaughtered a lamb and put its blood on the doorposts of your house. That's staggering. That means that God's people were in danger of God's judgment, even as he was saving them. And the only way out was the blood of the lamb. And so they offer the blood of the lamb as their substitute so that they don't fall under God's wrath. And then 2,000 years later, when John the prophet sees Jesus, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The scripture teaches that all of the animals sacrificed in the Old Testament could not remove sin. It could only cover it. And yet when Jesus comes, he through his own precious sacrifice, through his own blood, he is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus plans to eat this feast just before he is betrayed to celebrate the salvation that God brought for his people. He wants to remember that lamb in the Old Testament that was slain and to eat a lamb in his day that is slain to remember the joy of God's deliverance and salvation. And this joy is the key to what Christ does in the cross. See, we're not going to be morbid people for all of eternity. I believe that we will never forget the cross of Christ and we will celebrate it forever. But it's an invitation into joy. As the people in the Old Testament celebrated God's salvation, they did it knowing that God rescued them, that God loved them. And so this meal was not some somber, morose meal. It was a time of celebration. It was even richer than Thanksgiving. You know, Thanksgiving is a time where we recognize that, that God still blesses us and still provides for us. But not in the sense of national spiritual salvation like Israel is celebrating. It has a religious component that I don't think we can actually match, even at Christmas time. And Jesus wants to celebrate this just before he goes to the cross. And at this celebration of God's salvation, he begins to talk again of his own death. So we've looked at planned murder We've looked at a planned remembrance. Now look as Jesus talks about the plan for his own death, starting in verse 14. It says, And when the hour came, he reclined at table, 
and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired or I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you. It is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. Now remember again that the people who had plotted against Christ were powerless. They needed to await an opportunity. They could not make an opportunity. But notice what Christ says, this has all been determined. God Almighty gives them the opportunity that they could not provide for themselves. Jesus foresaw it all, and God had planned the opportunity that Jesus' enemies needed. Notice Jesus says his betrayal has been determined, and it must happen to fulfill God's plan. It's no accident. It's part of God's definite plan. Before I talk about Jesus' death, let me point out again the context of this meal. He says at the beginning of this meal that he has fervently desired or earnestly desired. In Greek it says, with desire I desire to eat this with you. It's talking about an anticipation that has a longing for real genuine fellowship. He loves celebrating what God has done with his disciples because it is a picture of what he is about to do for his disciples. He loves the joy that comes in that moment of celebration because it anticipates the future kingdom of God that one day will completely fulfill everything that was pictured in that meal. The greatest joy is ahead After the cross, this joy is made possible through the blood of Jesus. And so Jesus takes the final cup at the end of the meal, after they've remembered the salvation that God provides for his people, after the joy of that meal, and all the blessings of knowing God, he takes the cup and says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This cup is God's promise through His blood. Now think for a moment about what a covenant is. As you look through the Old Testament, it's a special kind of promise that's sealed in blood. People at war would make peace with one another and they would offer a sacrifice and they would say, this is what will happen to me if I violate this covenant, this promise, this treaty. And God says, this is what will happen If you violate my covenant with you, which we violated, and then in his mercy, 
He takes all of the wrath for breaking that covenant in the person of Jesus Christ. And so the new promise of God to you is that you will have peace with God through the blood of Jesus because he kept all of God's promises and laws when you and I failed and then he absorbed all of the consequences for our failure in his death on the cross. And so this, this covenant, this cup, is God's promise to you that the blood of Jesus will be effective for you when you trust it and rest in it completely. And so as I was thinking about this passage and thinking about really Genesis to Revelation, all of the Bible that describes the sacrifices of the Old Testament and the power of Jesus' blood in the New Testament, and I just want to read to you what Jesus' blood will do for you. I've got about a dozen verses, and I'm not going to read the verses. If you want a list of references, I'd be happy to give them to you later. But my hope for you, maybe you're here this morning and you're not a believer. My hope is that you would recognize you need the blood of Jesus for the forgiveness of sin and the joy that God wants you to have. And maybe you are a believer this morning. Maybe you know the gospel. Maybe you've trusted in it. Maybe you've been baptized already. My hope for you this morning is you would recognize how precious the blood of Jesus is and that not only does it purchase your forgiveness, but it empowers you to live as God's child. So listen, just from a handful of verses, what the blood of Jesus does. Scripture says that his blood was offered as the God-appeasing sacrifice to be received by faith says that his blood justifies guilty people and it saves them from the wrath of God. Scripture says his blood redeems us. It allows for the forgiveness of our trespasses. All the ways we've broken God's law, we are guilty. His blood redeems us from that guilt. It buys us back to innocence. By the blood of his cross, God reconciles all things to himself, making peace. Through his blood, Jesus secured our eternal redemption. The book of Hebrews describes how in the Old Testament, those sacrifices had to be repeated again and again and again. But through Jesus' blood, our redemption is eternal. His blood purchases us from slavery to sin. His blood frees us from the penalty and power of sin. His blood cleanses us from all sin. His blood purchased the church. His blood purifies our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. Maybe you have a burden of guilt. The blood of Jesus can purify your conscience from all of the guilty things you've done and even from trying to do good works on your own and it will purify you to serve the living God. And His blood will enable you to Boldly enter into the holy place so that you can pray directly to God yourself. In the Old Testament, you heard Jill read from Isaiah, how Isaiah, when he comes into the presence of God, is afraid. He says, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. That's what sinners experience when they come into the presence of a holy God. But through the blood of Jesus, we can enter boldly and talk to God for ourselves because of his blood. His blood provides all that we need to do His will. 
And with his blood, Jesus ransoms, he rescues people from every nation and from every tribe. White people, black people, yellow people, people from every part of the world. Jesus has paid for their ransom with his blood. His blood washes the robes of the saints and makes them white. You know, a lot of people criticize Christians for being hypocrites because they've noticed that we're sinners. We don't deny it. I'm a sinner too, but you know what? Jesus' blood washes me and makes me clean. And Jesus' blood allows the saints to conquer in the great tribulation. That Even when they die, they have ultimate victory because of the blood of Christ. That's what Jesus' blood does. And so I want to ask you this morning... Very personally, if I could look into each of your eyes this morning, I would. Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Have you experienced that kind of forgiveness? Scripture says that you receive forgiveness and peace through faith in His blood. That that blood was shed for you in your place. It was your blood that was was required and Jesus gave you His blood. And if you're a believer, I'd just like to ask, are you struggling with sin? Because if you are, the blood of Jesus will give you the power to fight. It will continue to cleanse your conscience. You don't need to live with with a burden of guilt. And it will give you the power to continue to fight so that you don't remain in your sin. Jesus' blood gives you the right to pray with boldness. It gives you the hope of future joy. So I just want to close and ask, would you trust it today? Would you pray with me? Father, we believe that the cross of Jesus Christ was no accident, but it was part of your plan to display your love. And we want to praise you for the willingness of Jesus to sacrifice himself for us. That in our place, he shed his precious blood. But we thank you for the forgiveness and the power that comes through it. And I just ask that you would give us peace and let us rest in it. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.